For November 24th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 334. As God is my witness, I'll never go on the Hunger Games again. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, your host, and I'm here with Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hello, Matt. I'm a little hoarse today, so if I sound especially sultry, it's because of my vocal failings. No, Pete, don't don't be so hard on yourself. You're a big horse. <laughs> hey, what? This wild heart can't be broken, Matt. <laughs> and uh, he's in from Boston, and we got Mark Leon from New York. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I saw some pretty rad propos encouraging me to join the rebellion, and I signed right up because when the media tells me things in fun pictures and sound, it's never wrong. It's true. I get propos in the mail uh, asking me to give to our college, but I will uh, not do that until they can win the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Do you hear do you wanna, that? Do you want to expl- explain that? How how uh, Yale has lost to to Harvard in, in football for eight years in a row now? After, after a series spanning more than a hundred years, in which no side ever lost more than three in a row. That is to say, every undergraduate was treated to the was treated to the the sight of their team winning at least once in their career. We've been on a losing streak. Yale, that is, has been on a losing streak again. Harvard for the last how many years is it? Eight. Yep. That's why I'm hoarse. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm a limping, sad, like misbegotten horse. Broken why, like, down shell of a man. Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, Hidalgo has gone and went, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah that's that's what went on that's what went on this week um for us uh but coming up this uh coming up this next week is Black Friday our favorite holiday all year uh yes a holiday of consumerism and waking up early and making a line outside of the Walmart and Busting down the glass doors just as soon as the cordoned off security area, just just as soon as the uh, arms linked line of riot police gear clad security officers uh, parts to uh, uh, parts to make the uh, to make the way clear for you and rushing into that Walmart and grabbing the I don't even know what the big loss leaders would be like the last time I really paid attention to it it was like $40 DVD players but of course that's not a thing anybody wants at all anymore what's the hot gift this uh, this Black Friday for this Christmas season I I don't know so I figure we'll make it the question of the week panel Tell me, what's on your wish list this, uh, this holiday season, this season of gift-giving, of proving that you love your friends and family by buying them things that you probably can't afford using credit cards? Uh, no, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Macrame something instead. Don't go into debt um, for, uh, for Christmas, unless you do it through our Amazon affiliate links. But that's another matter entirely. Pete Fenzel, what's on your wish list? Oh, well, you know what? It's okay to go into debt for learning macrame and for macrame supplies because that's an investment, not an right. expenditure. Well, that's uh, practically – I mean think of all the Etsy stores you could start with your newfound <laughs> knowledge of macrame. 
Awesome. So to make an unironic recommendation, I'm really psyched uh, to potentially get my hands on The World of Ice and Fire uh, by, well, by George R. R. Martin, uh, Elio Garcia, and Linda Antonsen, a collaboration, kind of a coffee table-ish kind of book with lots of color illustrations of stuff from Game of Thrones and the book series. I'm a really big fan of the book series. This has a lot of additional lore, uh, you know, and, and if you like lore, uh, rather than, if you're a lore man rather than a data man, this could be what you're going for. Uh, I'm excited about the book. I the sort of new material that's in it. Like a lot of the, if you, if there goes my voice again, if you track kind of Game of Thrones extended universe, as it were, stuff, you realize that a lot of it is in anthologies that you have to buy a bunch of other stuff in. You can't get like a standalone of all of the Game of Thrones related novellas, for example, yeah. like the Dunkin' Egg Tales or like the Princess and the, and the Queen and all the other stuff that George R. R. Martin has written about that universe. It's not like it's hard to get, but it's like prohibitively annoying to get, by which I mean it is even a little annoying to get, which makes it prohibitive. But uh, but the world of ice and fire is all in one package, and it's new in October, and I'm excited. And I hope I hope that uh, that, that maybe that ends up under my my uh, under my stocking, <laughs> not under my stocking either, either in my stocking or under my tree. Somehow it, that it ends up near the furnace or the fire or something else, but not in the fire. Or the not furnace. in the fire. It's made of paper. You don't want it to be. Uh, you don't want it to be in the furnace, do you? No, that would be both an unfortunate waste of money and a crime against free speech, right? So right. there you go. Absolutely. So, yep, and that's what our forefathers fought for, was for me to read about dragons. So freedom. <laughs> freedom, fire, and blood. <laughs> Excellent. What, what would the Fenzel words be if your house, if House Fenzel could have, you know, words and a, a sigil and, uh, you know, banners, right, and, and colors and things like this? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't mean to put you on the spot. That's why no, I, I, I suddenly it's, feel it's, bad, and that's why I'm vamping like this, to give you time to, uh, to do it. But you got it? You got the Fenzel words? No, I actually, I actually, you don't know this, Matt, but I actually did this as a mental exercise as part of a reddit thread once uh and and my word the words of our house i'm pretty sure would be uh what i said it was from from wall to home or from 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 uh from ridge to home or something like that from uh, from, and, from the window to the wall from the window to the wall indeed no it was uh it was because it would say the signal would be uh, a stone wall on a hill uh and the reason for this is that i have ancestors who fought and were wounded in the battle of fredericksburg um, so there's a famous ancestor of mine who fought with the Union, and not famous, he's famous among my father and me, right, and a couple of other people like my sisters and some of my cousins. We fought in the Battle of Fredericksburg and was wounded twice, uh, which was a, not a particularly well well done battle as far as the, the Union forces were concerned. A lot of running up a hill and getting shot. Uh, and he went on to drive a truck in Brooklyn for a hotel. Uh, and so that's kind of like the transition that marks the kind of modern emergence of that particular branch of my family was like going from being an Irish immigrant who was sort of pulled into the army, kind of, sort of not really wanting to be there, uh, running up a hill and getting shot twice because once wasn't enough, uh, for a Fenzel and then go, although he was a Murphy at the time and then going, uh, going to Brooklyn to go honk at people and try to deliver things in boxes. <laughs> so I feel like there's, there's some sort of move toward modernity in that story. And it's something that I'd be proud to have be my house signal, I think. Mm, absolutely. Uh, Mark, we're looking for something more, we're looking for something more whimsical with like a Dragon Ball Z logo on it that something said, this isn't even my final form would be my house signal. <laughs> but uh, I, I went for something a little more serious. Yeah, or, or you know, 9,000 it's just the beginning or something like that, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. There's just, it's, it's one of those bar coasters where it just says 9,000 at the bottom and it, and it says it's on the top. Because <laughs> it's over nine thousand. <laughs> Do those exist, Pete? 
What pun bar coasters? Totally, like like brain teaser bar coasters. Totally, yeah. You haven't seen those where you're in a bar and there's a coaster and it'll have like uh, no, I, I haven't seen. Oh that, yeah, I, I was asking specifically if that Dragon Ball Z um, uh, brain teaser bar uh, coaster exists. Uh, I mean, in a platonic noumenal sort of way, I suppose it exists within the realm of ideas. <laughs> okay, let's let's yeah, let's stick a pin in that in our uh, overthinking merchandising ideas. Uh, okay, no, yeah, enough. absolutely, and and Pete. Uh, word stand with the letter I written under it. <laughs> Mark Lee, what's on your wish list? Um, so uh, last year, you might remember that on the Overthinking a Gift Guide, I recommended a, a Logitech joystick for playing space simulators and flight simulators and games like that. And uh, I've been ranting about that off and on on the podcast and on the site, uh, mostly in conjunction with going back and playing the old Wing Commander Space Simulator games. Um, so uh, since this time last year, I've done that. I've beaten Wing Commander 1, Wing Commander 2, Wing Commander Privateer. Um, and I actually started playing Wing Commander 3, that game that I love, 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 love from back in the day with all the Mark Hamill um, bad uh, full motion video cutscenes from back in the day. And I actually couldn't get through it because the video was so painful and it took so many clicks just to get to fly the next mission. Um, so... This year, it's all about upping my game in two very important ways. One is uh, on goodoldgames.com. Uh, the, uh, uh, they have drug out of the archives X-Wing and TIE Fighter. Do those oh, games mean anything at all to you two gentlemen? Pete, it sounds like it does you. Oh, yeah. TIE Fighter is the game that broke my computer. Pete, I mean, to be fair, it doesn't take much. Well, that's true. You know, my computer is held together with popsicle sticks and dreams, right? And basically, like, uh, it, yeah, it, it relies on faith and probably too much electricity given its cooling system. No, no, no. Uh, I tried to install TIE Fighter on my computer, and it crashed and would not uncrash nice. uh, way back in the day. So I was never actually— to run? No, I never got to play TIE uh, Fighter. Oh, okay. Well, this is sad. your chance. This is your big chance, Pete. Okay, because these games are now available for uh, for download from GOG.com. They work on modern uh, Windows-based systems. It's not available for Mac uh, yet, but uh, I through some hacking, I was able to get X-Wing to work. Um, all that is to say that these games are demonstrably better flight simulators and experiences than the Wing Commander games, actually, because they cut out um, a lot of the um, hokey plot stuff that wasn't so great in Wing Commander, um, and also it's Star Wars, right? I mean, that's yeah. really what you want to do. You, want to, you, you don't really want to be flying for the Confederation against the Kilrathi. No, that's all uh, airsats, you know, flying for the Rebellion against the Empire, um, or in the case of TIE Fighter, um, flying for the Empire against the Rebellion. Um, so that is part one of sort of, you know, what's on, on my wish list here for upping my simulation uh, experience on my computer is X-Wing and, and TIE Fighter. Um, but the other thing, the real coup de gras in this is I wish that Santa or um, some other mythical being of gift-giving prowess would drop down my chimney and leave for me the Thrustmaster Hotas, hands-off st- uh, throttle and stick Warthog joystick set, which on Amazon goes for a solid $420. And we're talking about here are two pieces of military-grade flight simulation equipment. These are not mere joysticks. 
my friends. This is uh, these are um, uh, high quality metal, like twenty pounds of replica of of the flight equipment that goes into an A ten Warthog, and it is way overkill for a twenty year old game at this point. That's MS DOS, and was not designed for such hardware. But I want it so bad. It is metal. It is shiny. It is hardcore. It looks like um, it, it is your your Top Gun, your Star Wars, your Rambo, your every military fantasy uh, in cold, hard steel and plastic that you can wrap your fingers around and use to blast your enemies to smithereens. I want it so bad. So bad. Well, you know what? I am not interested in, in flying a TIE fighter in a computer game unless I can do it as realistically as possible. Exactly. It's all, about, it's all about how the TIE fighters were really flown. How did it all really happen? That is what I want I know. To know. The physics, that the flight model, they got to really yeah. hail that. Exactly. Right? You no, 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 no. Okay, okay. So in all seriousness, there's something <laughs> to be said about the verisimilitude of of playing a flight simulator game with a flight stick in your hand. I wrote about this in the gift guide last year, right? This is not like um, playing a first-person shooter with either an Xbox-style controller or with um, your keyboard and mouse, right? Where these are just pale imitations, mere abstractions of the act of, like, holding a gun and shooting people and things like that. You don't actually get to hold a gun. I mean, you haven't since the days of uh, of Duck Hunt, right? But with, uh, with the joystick in a flight simulator game, you're holding the controller as if a real pilot, as if you were a real pilot in the cockpit, Holding onto the controller and like you know pushing buttons on your uh, on your on your control panel, it's uh it, it's it's different. You see, I, 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 I feel the need to speak up for the super scope and the verisimilitude of plastic bazookas, but that's only to head off future well actuallys. I'm actually really excited for you and your joystick, Mark. I hope you get it, and I hope it brings you hours and hours of joy, um, as a stick of that sort is want to do. Thanks, Pete. I'm I'm glad that you are earnestly wishing that I get this because honestly, if it were to come in by my life. It would create a variety of problems, the least uh, one of which might be that it, these things are so damn heavy and take up so much space on my desk that they would never actually be used because they wouldn't really fit and would get in the way of me doing all anything else that's associated with my computer on my desk. Well, you got to have a place to put it where your dog's not going to knock it over. It seems to me like the most immediate problem with a uh, twenty. Oh joystick. no, 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 no! That's that that, that I don't think that's going to be a, a concern because um, oh. they are so heavily anchored onto the desk <laughs> that the dog will not possibly be able to knock them over. That it sounds like a challenge. It's not a large dog. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the dog is not as big as an A10 warthog, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Though it would be a, an adorable mascot for one. Mm. Yeah, get that detail on the side. We got to sell detailing services. That's what we got to do on our gift guide. Get your get your hot rod detail with Mark's dog. That they'll sell like hotcakes. All right, here here's mine. I uh, I, I have been. Uh, you know, I don't know, uh, reading for a while these these things about urbanism and about millennials, God help us, or or our generation, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what generation we are. We're sort of on the cusp of a couple, um, uh, about their job prospects and their uh, home ownership prospects. Um, and that the the you know the largest cities are the ones with the worst home ownership prospects for uh, people making entry level salaries or even people uh, making you know ten years out of college making uh, making money at a job um, that it's it's uh, you know all all of my friends mostly have have um, <laughs> all of my friends mostly uh, all of us anyway live live in apartments we are all renters not owners and and I grew up in 
in a, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a house with a backyard and, and, uh, you know, like a lot of people do, I guess a lot of people don't, but I did. And, uh, one of the things that, that we had was a charcoal grill in the backyard. And in LA, this is great because you can grill pretty much all year round. And, and for whatever reason, I've been kind of, maybe it's the, the changing of the seasons, the autumn and, you know, man's thoughts turn to his life and his accomplishments and how his quality of living is probably going to be less good than uh than his than that of his parents generation and and that for the you know um that yeah, I, there are probably a lot of Americans saying this now i've been thinking i i would like um i would like something to capture that uh to capture that that uh, to capture that, what, that, that longing for, you know, for a house, for a home, for a little plot of land to call my own. Uh, so long story short, I've been looking at gas grills online a lot recently. <laughs> I've been, uh, cause I can't have a charcoal grill. I live in an apartment and they're afraid you'll burn the building down. I suppose that's, that's a, a well-founded fear, but you can have a, uh, you can have a gas grill. And so I, you know, I look for the best ones and I look for deals on them, um, so the uh so the 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 one that I'm going to link is the uh the one that I'm going to link in the show notes is the the Weber Spirit uh E320 propane grill. Um it's uh you know listen it's it's a propane grill it, you know there's nothing like real charcoal real lump charcoal that you start in a chimney starter and and uh you know, based on the wood and based on how you configure the charcoal and based on where you place the meat inside the uh, inside the grill box, you know, you get all kinds of things and and burning propane and all the water that that all the water vapor that gets thrown off like it. You just can't equal it. But you know what? It's it's plenty close. So, uh you know, for for the price of I, you know, for the price of a couple hundred bucks, right? For the price of a major household appliance, you know, you can uh, capture some of that. You know, even even in my even on my like four foot by six foot balcony, right? Um, <laughs> I don't even know why I call it a balcony. It's a little wart outside of a window in my apartment. I can capture some of that magic, some of that cooking around the fire uh, magic this this holiday season. And so that's that's my gift to you. Um, and you can uh, click on a link in the show notes and see see the grill that I want you to get. Matt, uh, I, it is my duty to remind you that most people in our audience do not live in climates where uh, getting a grill in the month of December is going to be useful to them in less than four months. Okay, let me point out, let me just point out a couple things here. Like, let, let me, right, like, one, anyone can move, right? It's not, <laughs> it's not the Soviet Union, you know? Free you're, movement you're, of capital and labor. Okay, fine, Matt. I'm getting a grill and I'm moving to California. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? You're welcome here. Any of you is welcome on the bleeding edge anytime you you want. The, the, Right, you will be here with open arms for you. Um, <laughs> number two, what better time to get a grill? Because there are deep, deep discounts on them. Because this is not grill buying season. This is the off season for grill buying. So if you are not in a climate that will allow you to actually use a gas grill, right? Like I, you know, 
Get it. Just the capacity for delayed gratification. Stick the I, box I in the closet no. and you can roll it out. Uh, you know, you can roll it out around Memorial Day and uh, everything will be fine. Three. Come on, Mark. What, you're saying it's too cold outside to grill? The grill is a source of heat. It, it has, you know, it puts out 32,000 BTUs per hour with a 12,000 BTU side burner. You could be standing in the middle of a blizzard in shorts and a tank top if you're standing next to this grill. You know, this is, uh, right, like, this is a, a, a bulwark against the cold, a bulwark against our impending death, a bulwark against mortality and sadness and the contract of daylight as the the sun sets ever earlier in the day. This is mankind's one true hope for T-bone steaks marked off in a crosshatch pattern, uh, though it be the middle of December. You know, take courage, my East Coast friend. This is this is really inspiring, Matt. It, it's it's almost as if um, the grill itself were lighting a fire to a movement. A rebellion, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, I, I think this, this story ought to be called Weber Grill, colon, Catching Fire. I have a hunger, a hunger for justice and steak. Delicious justice steak. Big old cut of justice steak. I'm salivating over it. A little bit of Brussels sprouts of truth and honesty. And a little bit of collard greens of economic redistribution <laughs> all sorts of great stuff delicious feast of revolution so obviously we're talking about the hunger games so you know spoiler alert for the hunger games if you don't know how it ends yet um well so let's be clear spoiler alert for the hunger games through the end of mockingjay part one you think right, we're so? not going to spoil I mean, the like last so yeah i, I think, think there are people out there who are watching these movies who haven't read the books Okay. Yeah, and I mean, we've uh, and I mean, we've all read the book, so our our attitudes may betray some inference about what happens in the last book. But I feel like this movie was was chopped off cleanly. Uh, at least it's not like a, a jutting compound fracture of a movie, uh, as much as people might have feared that it is. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's that. Well, I mean, it's funny. It's sort of, well, okay. Like a, I think that's weak sauce, but I'm outvoted, so there you have it. B. Um, I, I think that they did do a good job cho- chopping it right. And the next, the next movie, you know, this, this, the next movie is probably the action spectacular, right? And this movie, though it it had some action in it, was what was like a was like a heart wrenching tale of you know the the price that innocents pay in war or something like that. Well, right? well let me tell you what I think this movie was about. It was uh, much more so than the other two movies a examination and a meditation on the interiority of Cadmus Everdeen like we we get to spend time more time a greater portion of the movie uh is spent inside of her head right and we're dealing with her craziness um than we experience with the other two movies um those i think um had a sort of a more outward look than um than this movie does and uh it's an interesting contrast to the books which are obviously told in in, in first person perspective right where all we get is katniss's perspective katniss's perspective um if i feel like the first two movies got away from that and then this movie really really brought it back home we are in katniss's head and it's not a pretty place to be huh 
Yeah, yeah, this to me. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. No, well, sorry, I've I've talked already, but that's a tough needle to thread, right? Because I have the problem all the time watching, well, the, all movies, but sort of action movies. When when the movie tries to you know bow a little bit in the direction of the the cost that that people pay when traumatic things happen to them, as we would sort of expect in you know in real life, right? Like you know, I don't know, like uh, I you know your average expectable person, like. Your shoelace can't break without it ruining your entire day, you know, much less all of District 12 getting getting leveled and, and your home being being blown to smithereens, you know. Um, it's uh, and, and yet when I watch these movies, when they ever bow in the direction of that kind of uh, of of the necessary recovery from that kind of trauma. I always think, oh, come on. It's an action movie. Quit crying and <laughs> kick some ass. You know, it's, it's funny. That's your perspective, Matt, because, um, you know, those those scenes of wartime atrocity in this movie, I thought, like, really, really hit home for me and were some of the most effective parts of it. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the scene of District 12 um, a- after the Capitol come through and bomb the place and you see charred out skeletons and human remains. Yeah, right? that's that pretty raw pretty... stuff. It's like it is like quite evocative of images of the Holocaust as well. I'm like, Wow. They went there, and, yeah, and you're right. You're right, Matt. It is young kids a, in my yeah, movie theater. It's, it's asking a lot from the viewer to both to take that in, and as well as to experience um, the, the 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 experience what the characters are going through in processing that and then recovering from it. Sorry, Pete. We all interrupted you. What, what's on your mind? What's on? Oh, I'm um, Dane. Dane to ask. There's. I'll tell you. Don't worry. I'll tell you what's on my mind. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, although we've sort of moved on from, from that thread, I thought that if you wanted to compare this movie to where it resides in the series, it feels like the prisoner of Azkaban sure. in the series. Yeah, like it is in like, this is the movie where the director was like, oh, there are formal elements in the way that this story is told that I find artistically interesting and kind of provocative. I'm going to make a movie that addresses those in more of a self-consciously cinematic way. Right? This is a movie that's also very concerned with the role of movie, like the role of film, the role of moving pictures right? in, in storytelling and in the formation of identity and political action. Uh, it's a very heavily meta movie, uh, and it, it's a movie that's just more sophisticated by like an order of magnitude than the other two Hunger Games movies in its like in its existence as an art object and in that sense it's sort of a it, ha- it can't really be in doing that it's like it's a bit like you could you could sort of start to call it the empire strikes back of the series but it's really not that it feels i think to me much more like the prisoner of azkaban in the series the first harry potter movie to really address the difficulty and the confrontations of them dealing with growing up and dealing with the darkness around them and the sort of juxtapositions in their life between kind of horror and 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 old-timey wizardness right uh and how to sort of reconcile all that stuff uh it's just it's just it's the it's the most interesting hunger games movie yet uh in that respect and and for that i liked it um, and I, I do agree that it does, like, uh, it dwells a lot on horrific images. But, I mean, it should. In, I mean, I don't know. I read, I read, I feel like it was in, like, an intro to the book or in a dust jacket, but it might have been in a piece of commentary, that, like, the actual story of real-life child refugees was very much the inspiration for the whole series. And that this, that even on top of this also being the book, the movie so far that gets us closer to inside the head of Katniss Everdeen, I think it is also the movie so far by a large, large degree that gets us closest to, uh, 
to where, oh gosh, why am I blanking on her name now? Uh, the author of The Hunger Games. Susan Collins. Susan Collins. Susan, Susan Collins uh, the closest where she was in, in writing it. Because Mockingjay is a tough book. And we're not going to talk about the parts of Mockingjay that aren't in, this, in the movie, this movie that just happened. But Mockingjay is a tough book. And it's a book that challenges a lot of what's previously happened in the series. And I feel like this movie did that too. And I, and I liked that it did it because I was so despairing. I was going to go see this movie and it was going to totally cop out on all of the challenging and difficult parts of the first half of Mockingjay. And it really didn't. So that I liked. So, like, and I so, didn't think, yeah, go ahead. So what I'm curious, Pete, about your, your this sort of formal elements and the, the cinematic elements that, that you uh, are talking about. Call out a couple of them and let's talk about them. Yeah, sure. So there's the the big the big one is the aspect of the movie that is either filmed f- deliberately from the perspective of the cameraman shooting the propaganda for the District 13 Civil yeah, War. Yeah, there's some handheld stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then, but there's but it's not just that, right? There's also the idea of there are times when Katniss is being dressed up in outfits to go out and create a specific message, right? To go out and do these propaganda films, to go out and show you what it's like when it's really her out there. And sometimes they'll show you sort of the angle that the cameraman is showing, but other times they're really shooting it from a Hollywood angle. They're shooting it from the angle that they want to shoot it, which for me, uh, it, it's it's sort of like... It's, it's more textured than just saying, hey, you're going to be partially indicted as somebody who is susceptible to this propaganda because we're going to show you in the movie the propaganda that they're making. And we're going to frame it as if it is part of the movie. And you're going to have to consider what is it like? What does it mean for you to watch this action movie? And by extension, all action movies, right? So there's a little bit of that. But it even steps back from that and says, we're also just going to shoot the movie and we're going to sort of leave it as a bit of an open question at certain points of the movie whether what you're watching is the eye of district 13 propaganda or is genre convention or is the you know the auteur of this movie talking to you right like there's a very blurry line in this movie between the things that are shown to you uh as in a metacinematic way as the basis of the district 13 propaganda campaign uh, versus the things that are shown to you uh as part of the hunger Games series or as part of your blockbuster movie experience like it's 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 sort of like starship troopers in that it has this aspect of being like kind of self-aware war propaganda but it's also uh, it also kind of like is not as cleanly like that. It doesn't have the sort of crazy zany lines in it that Starship Troopers has to remind you and detach mm. you from the fact that it's propaganda. Yeah. Right. So uh, in that respect, yeah. it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's taking the, the elements of the Hunger Games that were introduced in the first two movies and taking it to a totally different level. I'm, of course, I'm referring to this idea of um, – you know, in the first two movies, you are watching the Hunger Games as if you are like a citizen of the capital or one of the districts and, you know, just gawking and enjoying at the spectacle of these young children killing each other. Right. And then you also have like the Caesar Flickerman stuff where, you know, there's like this reality show uh, sort of uh, talk show kind of thing going on. And you're a little bit of a participant uh, of it as well. And and that that in itself like dainu right that was a really fascinating thing going on with the first few hunger games but this is uh, taking it to a, a whole different level and just engaging very directly with this idea of propaganda and manipulation in media and um, I, I i don't know I, I i saw the movie yesterday and um i'm still trying to process like what exactly was the intent of of this movie like especially considering the particular young audience that goes to see these right teenage girls 
essentially. Like, what are they supposed to take from this? Well, I, I got to tell you, I mean, just looking around the theater that I was in, it, it wasn't all teenage girls. And I did go in the afternoon on a Sunday. I didn't go during, like, prime weekend movie night time. But, uh, you know, it, it was really a mixed crowd. I mean, I was there, you know, and and there were other... It, it wasn't like I wouldn't have called it a predominantly female audience. I wouldn't have called it a... a predominantly anything audience actually it was pretty uh uh and i was looking for this as i was kind of looking around and kind of doing some demographics in my head and it wasn't uh it wasn't what i expected in terms of being like primarily targeted at um uh, yeah. at young te- you know what i mean at young at young teenage girls That's there a fair were point. like i was pretty there were some kids in in the audience that like you know, it's not a movie for kids. There's like, there's some nightmare fodder in this in this movie, in the like bombed out buildings and human remains and stuff like that 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 uh, that you identified before. And there are also, I mean, not a ton of like extraordinarily tense, suspenseful moments, but there are one or two. And it's it's uh, you know, I don't know, I, I I wouldn't have called it one for a you know for a kid that that sort of has the potential to start crying in the the middle of the movie, right? Like, uh, and, and that happened a couple of times during the, during the film. And I, it's not hard to see why. Um, yeah. I, so, you know. so yeah, let me rephrase my question then. So, um, on one hand, there's sort of, uh, the hunger games books, I think maybe had a core, more of a core audience of, um, initial audience of teenage girls, which clearly expanded way beyond that to adults of all, of all genders. Right. And then this, these movies, are certainly intended as four quadrant movies, as they call them in the business, right? Uh, one axis you have young and old, and the other axis they have male and female. Yeah. Right. So with that in mind, <clears throat> and, old, very- and old, by the way, I think starts at like 18. So, <laughs> you know. Um, does it really? I mean, like, this, this is like a formal, like, entertainment marketing it's not, kind of thing, right? Like, Yeah, it's not like 35, I think, right? Like, right. Um, so with that in mind, and also considering that, you know, this movie, um, was intended for the, the massest of mass appeal, right? And has succeeded, right? Has like taken its place in, in all time opening weekends or something like that with some, you know, nine figure sum of, of money that it earned this weekend. Yeah. So considering all that. Right. And, and, you know, looking at this movie and we are extrapolating from this and saying that it it is a very interesting commentary on the nature of propaganda and media and manipulation and things like that um is it the intent of the movie to like really drive that point home with its audience or is it just kind of slipping it in as uh, as sort of extra stuff for the more sophisticated viewer to chew on while the rest of the um all the rest of the audience appreciates the story at a more service level well, the, the story itself isn't propaganda, and that's that's the highest praise I think you can give to it, and some of the highest praise that you can give to the Hunger Games series in general, which is that it really leans close to being propaganda and being kind of like epic uh, stuff about, oh, hey, you know, we need to overthrow the existing government and replace it with something that's going to solve all of our problems and fix everything, right? Like, mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
Because that's sort of the attitude you come out of the first Hunger Games with. And that's kind of what's funny about the first Hunger Games, right? Is that, like, the, that the, uh, the capital is presented as this, as this, like, Rube Goldberg civic organization that just has this, like, bizarre and nonsensical way of doing things. And it's like virtually anything other than this would be better than this. This is just so stupid. And for everybody who's involved in this whole setup, it's just really dumb, right? And then you get to uh, Catching Fire, and it's like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. Like, there's going to be a rebellion. And it's going to be a cliche rebellion story. And then you get to Mockingjay, and it's like, it's sort of like that, but it also is uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and Mockingjay, and this is – now, so the movie, what it really is, is it's, you know, as you said, it's the closest thing to, to get into the head of – it's the closest movie so far towards getting into the head of Katniss. The, the Downton Abbey moment of the movie, if, if, if I can try out something we haven't talked about the podcast in a couple, minute, in a couple weeks, maybe a couple months – for me, you know, the Downton Abbey moment is the scene that has nothing to do with the main plot of the movie, really, or the TV episode, that can provide you with a doorway for interpretation for the other ones. So for me, the Downton Abbey moment of this movie is when Katniss finds Buttercup the cat inside of her old house, right? And, the, and it's like, oh, hey, it's Buttercup the cat. I did the important thing. I found Buttercup the cat. And she takes Buttercup the cat and she stuffs Buttercup the cat into like a canvas bag. Right. She puts the cat into the bag, which I'm sure is, is suggestive in some way. Right. But um, later she does let the cat out of the bag. That's her bringing the cat to her sister. But the point is that this is a symbol that and by the difference, of course, between a metaphor and a symbol being that a, a symbol is, you know, a, v- a vehicle for a variety of tenors at once. Right. That there's a bunch of different loaded things that this putting the cat into the bag is reflective of. It's reflective of the District 13 people saving Katniss and then sort of imprisoning her. Right. It's a, it's a related to the capital kind of saving PETA and also kind of imprisoning him. Right. And then it's also about. Katniss wanting to go save PETA when everything else in the world is total ruins, right? Like, that the cat is what matters, right? And then the cat being trapped is something that, that Katniss also comes to recognize, you know, and identify with later when she sees the cat kind of, like, scratching at the wall, right? And so yeah. that the, the cat is, is representative of the human aspect, right? That it's like, that this movie is a lot more like Gone with the Wind than people would like to think. <laughs> Right, where it's like the movie the movie is about so like this movie is also kind of like the anti Casablanca, right? Because when like when you're in Casablanca, right, and then like uh and Humphrey Bogart is like, Well the problems of two people don't mean a hill of beans in this crazy world and that's why you're getting on that plane where you belong. And you know that that's not really true. Like the reason you care about what happens in the movie is because the problems of two people, you know, should be more than a hill of beans. And that's why we care. Right. It's like we care because the problems of two people, yes, relative to global politics, they're they aren't worth a hill of beans. But to us, they're the biggest hill of beans that there is. Right. And and, and Casablanca does a really good job of reconciling the problems of individual people and love and affection with this like drive for for a revolution. Whereas the Hunger Games, it's like, you know. You know, I, the whole like I don't give a damn kind of thing, where it's like you know the world is burning around you, and you're trying to hold on to something. And are you going to be able to hold on to this thing that matters to you when the world and everything that you stand for in the world is is coming under question and is falling apart? 
right? And there's it's a there's a grand romance to it, but of course it's a grand romance with an ultimately horribly frustrated aunt. And and I think more than this being a movie that is propaganda for the purpose of talking about how you use film to like attack regimes, this this at some point this movie gets a little bit too close to being about the Israeli Palestinian conflict to be comfortable yeah, to talk about, yeah. right? Because when they blow up the hospital and stuff. Um, and, and we don't necessarily need to go into the specifics of that, but then it veers away from it and becomes about like the human, it becomes about the cat, right? Save the cat, right? The famous speech, uh, screenwriting book that people love to hate. Um, it's about like the lives of these individual people and them trying to find ways of dealing with their various states of slaving slash of saving slash confinement in a world that's on fire. Right. Yeah. So, you, so, you, you burn us, we burn with you. All of Atlanta is burning. Right. Tara is burning. Right. And I mean, the, the difference is that there is that nobody got to live in Tara before they set it on fire. Tara was like a corrugated shack. But you know what? It was still our corrugated shack. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> so, so. Pete, a couple of things. First of all, yeah. as God is my witness, I'll never go to the Hunger Games again. <laughs> right. Had to be said. Second of all, I don't know if you were consciously or unconsciously referencing this, Pete, but um, in I have the, the text of the Hunger Games uh, book, Mockingjay, in front of me here. And uh, on page 153, or in the Kindle location, 1971, um, Katniss's interior monologue explicitly calls out uh, the cat as a metaphor for herself and her own situation. <laughs> Her name is Katniss, after all. <laughs> she has, yeah. which, which is roughly translated as the quality of being like a cat. Right, exactly. <laughs> her Katniss. Yes, yeah. Her Katniss is strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but Pete, you said there's a what, screenwriting book called Save the Cat. Oh, right? yeah. And it is, it, can you unpack that a little bit and, and say, like, what exactly, like, how the cat uh, metaphor plays through, uh, like, that sort of is used as a, as a tool for thinking about constructing stories i mean it's pretty interesting matt did you want to go into it or do you want me to <laughs> oh oh great pimp me into telling you uh, i mean i can tell you about it i just you cat. seem to also identify it and i it's a book a it's a book of screenwriting advice uh by a guy named blake snyder and um uh you know save the cat refers to like basically give the people what they want right like like don't create don't create a whole bunch of of unbearable tensions and then you know disappoint every expectation in the name of like te- teaching people a valuable lesson about life you know if the cat is hanging off of the burning rope save the damn cat you know um, uh, that specifically what saving the cat refers to in the context of the book is it's a thing that you have the hero do at the beginning of your story to let everyone know that that's the hero right and this is this is like we talked about this when we did the john wick podcast where there's like a puppy that dies and our dog <laughs> that dies right and you're like oh <laughs> stuff's going down now they killed the dog right like uh, or like equilibrium which is also a movie about rampant rampant violence as the result of a death of a puppy right it's like uh that's how you know who the bad guy is that's how you know who needs to die is the person who kills the puppy and save the cat is about identifying clarity in like your story structure and in the in the, in the story you're trying to tell but yeah it's very pragmatic it's like i mean i liked it a lot because it demystified a lot of like sort of how professional movies are put together um but i think a lot of artsy people find it just intolerably toxic i mean matt what what is your general take yeah that's i mean that's that's sort of what i think about it the people who people who are writers sort of bristle against the the very rigid strictures that that it proposes on you know um the range of like incident Right, that it's possible yeah. to include in in a story, but the cat, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know. No, we're talking about this damn cat, but like, 
Um, like I, I'm, I'm also thinking like the cat is important because the cat is kind of a surprise or a disappointment, a sort of disappointing surprise, right? And kind of the last thing, the last thing that, that you would expect. So it's not just about like this was not a quest to save the cat, right? So, so it's not just like, well, yes, I've saved the cat, but then I also imprison the cat, right? Like my intentions have unintended consequences or winning looks a lot like losing from a certain point of view. It's not just that. It's that the consolations of life are uh unexpected um not the ones you would wish for you know so a little disappointing in in that respect um damned inconvenient from a certain point of view right and uh, i think this this has to do with the larger i mean this has to do with the larger themes of of uh of a series about sort of the the muddying of good intentions you know and the 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 impossibility of just being like no we need a good government to replace the bad government and that would be you know that would be it what this family needs is a cat it needs a companion animal to love and tend to right like it doesn't it it doesn't work that way. Yeah, uh, let's not, let's not forget that the cat almost gets Primrose killed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it, and that's the other thing is that like maybe one thing we should we should talk about a little bit because it might not be obviously it might not be something that comes to mind for people who haven't read the book who watch the movie because it's a framed a little bit more. I think I think that uh, the presence of Julianne Moore has an ameliorating effect on most attitudes, right? Like um, that, like it's pretty clear that the District Thirteen organization is like pretty fascist right like that like they claim to be democratic but they have virtually no freedom right and they all dress in matching gray outfits and salute with military (laughs) hollering and throwing their fists in the air right like everything in their life is just this miserable like imprisoned you know with effie is to a degree right when she sort of makes a joke about how like it's visiting hours right she's Um, condemned to a life in a jumpsuit (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like the yes, like, and that's that's part of why. And again, I that's part of why I like this movie. It's so fashionable and popular to like pick a story that people like and problematize it by introducing like a moral ambiguity, or like more specifically, like, hey, have you thought about the fact that the opposite of what you like is also true? Right? Like, uh, you know, that like, hey, you know, did, who's the real villain? Right? Like, you know, have you considered the privilege that John McClane has in throwing Hans Gruber off the building? You know, like, what about Hans Gruber's family? Right? Like, or something like that. Perhaps, right? like, perhaps Sarah Koenig is the killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, no, oh, that's, that's, that's a yeah. Separate podcast. We're talking about the serial podcast for those who are not in the know about how that's a really popular thing and and has sparked the backlash. But then that that is problematization along lines we're talking about. But sorry, continue, Pete. And I mean, I'm not saying that there's nothing good that's said during those kinds of conversations. I think that it is. It's important, especially if you've never been exposed to it before. It's important to develop the faculty for critically investigating things that you connect with on an emotional level for a potential hypocrisy. Great. But, uh, the president snow is really 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 bad like he's so bad the capital is so so bad and president snow is so so terribly bad that it is really hard to say hey you know president coin is a fascist right like uh you know president coin is a fascist she projects her face on giant movie screens towards hordes of loyal soldiers all the children have been mysteriously killed right like you know uh <laughs> by a by a plague of some kind right like like there's a lot of 
of shady things. No one's allowed to have a pet. There's a lot of shady things that are happening in District 13, but we don't have that comfortable place of being able, we don't have the sort of meta privilege of being able to indict District 13 for their, like, their arrogance and thinking they're morally superior to the Capitol when they can consider their own district privilege when no no to argue against the necessity of removing him by by four at a time then you have sort of terminator-esque shots of katniss treading over the skulls of her fallen friends and relatives right like uh you know and which maybe in the moment didn't seem terminator-esque to you at the time but you know i guess maybe it did to me and so on and so forth. Sorry, I'm a little hoarse, and and maybe my connection isn't doing the best. But but just I'm just yeah. trying to say so, the like it's a yeah. You you go ahead, Pete. You 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 reminded me of something I wanted to, to jump bring on up. In, Mark, I'm, jump this is a little bit in. of a this is a little bit of a tangent. But um, when you mentioned that um, the scenes of Katniss trotting over the skulls were a bit Terminator esque, I was reminded of a thought about um, Katniss as any sort of connection at all to Sarah Connor. And I haven't fully formed this thought, but I will bring up something in particular that made me think of the Katniss Sarah Connor uh, connection. So you will all recall in Terminator 2, a.k.a. the greatest action movie ever made, um, Sarah Connor go, undergoes a transformation in the middle of the movie where she becomes obsessed with this idea of vengeance and killing Miles Dyson, right? So that she becomes a Terminator and loses her humanity and uh, goes off on this assassination mission and dons the sunglasses and like has to be stopped by John Connor who reminds her of her, her sense of humanity and all this great stuff it's 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 fantastic of course it is because it's terminator 2 and i love it um but that reminded me of uh this moment in the book the hunger games uh, mocking jay in which Katniss displays a similar lack of humanity and cold bloodthirst for vengeance which is cut out of the movie um do you guys remember in the book, when Katniss is making her list of demands um, that must be fulfilled in order for her to take on the role of the Mockingjay, one of them is, I kill snow. Do you remember this? When I, uh, yeah, I murder mean, me now, Mr. Me snow. Of it, but I'd actually forgotten about it. No. Yeah, so, okay, so, no, I don't know. Do you, you guys don't know that Rogers and Hammerson song? No, I'm afraid not. Of course, it, uh, his name is Mr. Snow, and a horrible tyrant is he. He is Jack Bauer's dad, but he's so much worse that he drives all our children to the sea. I don't know what. For it. Okay, so, you're, so, you're not familiar so, with, with Mr. Snow? I, I'm not, no, I'm sorry. Well, uh, all I can By say, way, Mark, is like, that was a really nice clam bake. It was a lovely, oh, that was a lovely clam bake. Thanks, I think. Okay, let me finish also, up this yeah, thought. Go ahead. Let and me finish thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so in the books, right, you know, that's one of her demands. I kill Snow. And also, like, the, uh, the family gets to keep the cat is kind of mentioned there as a... Uh, as a it, it's part of the demands as well, too, but it's not played up for quite the same kind of comic relief as it is in the movie. Um, but I think what was going on in the book is that it... Um, that was a moment for the author to really highlight uh, this certain aspect of Katniss, which is like this, uh, like a lack of uh, her loss, the loss of a certain amount of humanity from the Hunger Games, right? Where she is so driven by her desire for revenge that, like, she's like straight up in capital letters, I think, like written down on a piece of paper, is "I kill snow," right? Like, you know, I am a Terminator. I'm going to terminate snow, um, and they take that out of the movie. Um, intentionally i think to partly to to take some of the edge off of of katniss's character like that's a little bit too uh bloodthirsty cold-blooded killer for a pg-13 movie with a significant youth audience um but uh but 
that, that, that's sort of the main thing there. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And, and, and yeah, because the, the, yeah, the YA fiction d- doesn't have a youth audience. No, I'm not. I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I'm not trying to poop on your point. But um, I mean, I don't know. It's it strikes me that different. It strikes me that different things are at play, right? In the YA, uh, in the YA book, and in the the kind of general audience in the general audience movie, right? Like the movie is about fascism in the way that in the way that we've talked about, and it's about sort of I don't know. It's it's about I guess what you might call creeping fascism, right? It's about sort of fascist elements in. Uh, in social structures that are still preferable to the alternative social structures or to the existing social structures, right? It's about how you can't, um, how you can't, uh, uh, how you can make things better, but you can't necessarily make things good, I guess, is a way, you know, is a way to put it. Um, the, the sort of truism about a lot of the a lot of the the YA stuff is that it's like, well, fascism is is a metaphor for being a teenager. You know what I mean? And and the uh, the stuff in the book is all in in a much larger uh, in a much larger passage about Katniss adjusting to life in District Thirteen, right? And there's a lot more kind of day to day detail. Being a novel, you can kind of unfold a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what what's going on and how she sort of bristles against the authority uh and how she sort of recognizes the superiority of this system to the capital system but still doesn't like being told what to do cuz she's a free spirit and you know she's you know you can't tell me what to do you're not my dad you know uh <laughs> he was killed in a mining accident that you know that's right like and and in this like partly because it's a movie I think um, a lot of and right and because the the parallels to uh, the the parallels of the cinematic spectacle to actual historic fascist spectacle cannot be denied right they're they're too they are sort of their manifestations are too plain um, to you know to be ignored. Um, it's not. It becomes a movie where the fascism <laughs> represents fascism um, instead of the fascism representing how parents just don't understand, you know. And yeah. and so with with that, the the uh, the um, stuff about I kill snow acquires a, a different, much darker valence, right? It's it's not that the book is darker. The book is less dark because the book has a different set of concerns, right? There's no. You know, there's no like look looking down, hearing a crunch when you step, and looking down, and you you realize you're stepping on a skull, right? Even even though there are some like, you know, very you know very deeply disturbing things in the book, um, there's nothing that that quite lands with that amount of of visceral. Uh, that amount of visceral force. And speaking of visceral force, by the way, like Jennifer Lawrence killing it, right? Like really good performance uh, in material where you sort of wonder because of the providence of the material, maybe because like, you know, I enjoyed the Hunger Games book. They're certainly better than the... Um, Oh God! What's the one that Shailene Woodley's did? Divergent. There's, you know what I mean. They're certainly better than a lot of comparable uh, dystopian future YA. Um, 
but but still like uh, you know i don't know i had i had some problems with with the book or 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 rather like the virtues i recognize in the books are not necessarily literary virtues first and foremost right and uh and so because of the the source material you sort of think you sort of think well okay they'll do what they can with it but like Jennifer Lawrence in in my opinion like killing it uh in in the performance you know Yeah yeah, yeah. Can I offer another uh, possibility for the kill snow thing cuz I think I think the math's dead on but I wanted to add another factor that might be in play uh which is is that all right Mark yeah, go for it. It's your idea. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have to. I should. I guess I shouldn't just ask permission. I should just apologize if I if I crunch like a skull uh, underfoot of a Terminator. But um, so the movie has to find a place to end uh, because obviously, like there isn't even the pretense. Good point. At, a, at an ending in the middle of the book, um, this this is not the way that the story is told. The book the book is not even all that long, right? So like it's they need to figure out a way for the the movie to end. And, it, and there's a couple of different ways that you can have something feel like an ending. Um, one of the ways, of course, that, that we are used to is have a climax and then have like a denouement, right? Like have like something that's big and that happens and have like a little celebration jub-jub song after it when everybody's happy. Um, but the way that this movie decides to end is it picks another you know style structural style of ending which is like a moment of dawning and expanding horror like Mm -hmm. i would say that like you would expect the movie to end on a cliffhanger because it's like a part one of a two-part story but i would say it doesn't really end on a cliffhanger there's nothing that's like about to happen when the movie ends like all of the sort of micro plots have been resolved the the conflict continues but it's going to restart right there's no like like gale isn't like mid parachute jump out above like a fire firestorm full of godzillas right like that's not happening uh, um, although that would be awesome but it ends hey hey at, hey yeah. check your privilege pete you know godzilla has a family right godzilla well, has Godzilla's agency female oh godzilla point. there's mecha godzilla there's baby godzilla there's <laughs> they all live uh, they all live on uh on extremophile peninsula as we found out from the <laughs> uh, but uh but uh but but it ends with katniss sort of looking at Peta and the just the torturous suffering that he's undergoing and realizing and and just dawning on the vast horror of the human suffering that's been introduced by everything that's happened up until this point and this sort of roaring crescendo is where it cuts to the credits you know yeah. right and, and, and yeah another example i guess and so you can't call, back, right? sorry pete i just feel like pete didn't kind of totally cash out that point you can't no, you you can't call your shot in a situation yeah. like that because then you have to make your shot or else it's a bad movie right right and so yeah, yeah, to yeah, say yeah. i kill snow it's it it wouldn't be it wouldn't work there's, structurally yeah, there's two reasons because she doesn't kill snow in this movie right so like thus like there's there's not even an attempt right like there, it's it's something that would be introduced as a plot point that never happens and two it is it would represent a bigger character transformation for Katniss than the level that she's at at the end of the store at the end of this movie and it needs the movie needs to end on Katniss's highest level of personal horror so far yet in the story and having Katniss being like I'm going to murder Jack Bauer's dad personally right like you get the sense that that's like that that to me feels like a higher level of horror for Katniss than like watching Peta suffer like she has to have already arrived at like a pretty desperate and and bleak and brutal place for her to want to like personally exact blood vengeance right but like but she, at the end she's there but she's not there in the middle she's not there in like act two of the movie so like it's just it's just a sort of yeah. shape of the plot the, right? the, other, the other thing i'm thinking about is and i could be mistaken but i thought that in the book there's more of a sense of the grand strategy of district 13 about taking the fight to 
the capital uh, than there was in the book. Right. So yeah. that it would have made a lot more sense for Katniss to say that I kill Snow in the context of, oh, we have this big counteroffensive plan and we're going to take the fight to them, which that conversation does not really take place in the movie. Yeah. Right. I mean, another thing that happens in the book is that in the movie, the war against the capital is presented as a fairly devolved series of semi-independent actions. Right. Like right. you have the sort of like you have the sort of like muscly Depression era orcs who like rush at the, the dam. Did you did that strike any of you guys how similar the scene where the rebels crash the dam is to like the the attack on Helm's Deep in uh, the Two Towers. Huh, yeah, where, where like the suicide yeah. orc runs in to blow everything up, and how the sort of guys in white armor are sort of elfin in their defense of their mighty fortress. Uh, I felt that that was one of the interesting kind of I don't know maybe maybe that's not an intentional reference, but I think the sort of sloppy masses rushing at the well organized soldiers is enough of a cinematic trope that it's it's also serves to kind of introduce some of the inversions that are happening and how the story is being told, especially they're sort of like. You thought, I thought it was going to be a suicide bomb at first, right? But then it's like a timed bomb that blows up the dam. Yeah, I, was, I thought it was going to be a suicide bomb as well. But I guess that's yeah. the movie kind of pulling its punch in another way, right? By not yeah. having it be a suicide bomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, well, I mean, is it? I don't even know. But yeah, they. I mean, whether it is in the book or not. But uh, yeah, but I, I got the sense maybe. I'm mean, again. I read the book a, a year or two ago, but it was like uh, a couple years ago, maybe at this point. But it was like. It seemed to me from the book that the Civil War was much more orchestrated by the people of District 13 uh, than that it was like District 13 had its own forces, but there was also a widespread uprising that was more or less unaffiliated with them. You know what I mean? Like that had its own resources and its own organization. Um, and maybe it's the costuming that gives that suggestion because all the District 13 people are in their gray uniforms and everybody else is dressed like an extra from a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, right? So, like, it's in their, like, caps and their strapping suspenders and their climbing trees and their lumberjack gear and whatnot. Um, how about that scene, huh? That sort of House of Flying Daggers-ish that was going on? Yeah, a little where, bit. Like they, yeah, 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 where they were, like, scaling the trees super quickly to blow away everybody. That was rough. That was dark, like killing all those soldiers. That was presented in a very like nasty way too, right? Like, um, well, yeah. I, I mean, there I, is there is a, a great cause. I mean, like it it is clear that all these things are sort of carried out, you know, at great at great cost, right? Like there's there's tremendous sacrifice uh, yeah. that that people are sort of willing to do, and I'm not sure it's totally even really acknowledged by the movie kind of how dark the implement the implications of of what they're saying are yeah. uh because it's you know it's it's the movie in which in which the discourse of uh, of sacrifice is is sort of always manipulative whether it's i mean whether it's julianne moore or don or jack bauer's dad you know like i don't even watch 24 and now now that's how i'm gonna call him for the you know. <laughs> He he has so many mannerisms. Like I was, I rewatched Catching Fire earlier this week, and oh my god, Donald Sutherland as President Snow does so many Jack Bauer moves. It's just like oh wow, it's mind blowing. Just the way that he holds his eyes and the way he says threatening things. Like Dark Jack Bauer is totally channeling his father. It's totally nuts. Uh, by which I mean Kiefer Sutherland is channeling Donald Sutherland when he's being the nastiest he could possibly be, which casts that and, and Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, particular lifestyle might cast kind of a dark tone on the entire Sutherland family. <laughs> but uh, uh, who am I to say that, that President Snow might be anything less than an upstanding man? Um, 
Anywho, Mark, uh, uh, anyway, yeah, I was just saying that, like, in this movie, if they said, I'm going to kill Snow, they could be like, well, I mean, there's a whole lot of people who want to kill Snow. We can't guarantee that you will be the first one to get to him, yeah. right? Like, uh, whereas in the books, you got the sense that they were more in control of who was going into the Capitol and when. But anyway, Mark, uh, I, I, I hand you back the conch uh, if you want to bring up any further topics or questions related to this wonderful uh, discussion that I'm really enjoying. Yeah, one last thing, and then I want to address some listener feedback that uh, we gathered through Twitter um, at the uh, a few hours ago before we recorded this podcast. Um, an interesting thing happened in my screening of the movie uh, very at, at the very end. So you all recall, right, that um, um, that that Katniss is reunited with Peta, kind of comes up from behind, and Katniss is supposedly very excited to see Peta. And what does Peta do? He tries to choke out and kill Katniss, right? And it's kind of a frenzied, horrific moment, and then smash cut to Katniss lying in a hospital bed. And what happens in my theater? Everybody bursts out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was unfortunate. That happened to you too, Matt? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and it's the I I think it's the quick re- I mean it's the quick release, right? Like cuz that's that's a a callback, right, to how how the movie started with her in the hospital bed uh, at the beginning of the movie and it's the wrong it's the wrong point to, to make that move, right? That is like incorrect strategy for that, <laughs> for that point, uh, you know, for that point yeah. in the film. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but as I remember from the books, PETA was not sent back for the purpose of actually assassinating Katniss. He was sent back because, as, and I might be misremembering this, but he was sent back because Snow believed that PETA's like extreme state of of torture and like hatred for Katniss would be like psychologically damaging to her and to the war effort. That sounds right. right. Like, yeah. Yeah. That like he won't, that she won't be able to handle dealing with him that like that, that she will, this, this will yeah. like break her will and make her incapable of conducting her mission. And then I feel like as the filmmakers, they're like, well, that's kind of indirect, right? Like, uh, like, can we perhaps raise the stakes a little bit on this so that it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit more immediate and maybe they raise the stakes like a little too much or, or maybe, they just overemphasize this plot point if it is one that endures from the books of the movie. Right, right. So I went back and checked the text, and it indeed happens that Peter tries to choke out and kill Katniss. Uh, right, right, right. But I, I think, um, but I'm not sure whether that was that it was like that was the purpose that he was sent for, or whether it's something that he does out of extreme duress. Right, like uh, you know what I mean? Like whether it whether yeah. whether Snow like does Snow consider Peter's failure to kill Katniss as like a failure, or does he consider the fact that he tried to be a success? Right, um, because he it, it's, he's trying to get inside Katniss's head. But I mean, whatever. Maybe that's just my looking at at like an alternative explanation. Because that's also like me looking at okay, the main fact of Peta's existence in this movie is that he makes Katniss feel terrible, right. and and then it's about human cost. Yeah, and he so, will continue to do so in the second movie. Um, no spoil, yeah. no spoilers, no spoilers. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. One other thing on this sort of audience laugh, audience reaction thing is uh, one of the other things I thought going on was that people were reminded of the the way that a lot of this plays out in the books, in the book, uh, which is that Katniss getting knocked unconscious or going losing, losing consciousness um, happens so often in the last book that it becomes kind of a joke by the end of it. I don't know if any of you remember this in your experience of reading the book, but that was definitely my recollection. It was like, oh, here we are again. This is like the Katniss getting knocked out and bring, coming back kind of thing happening um that that you know that was kind of mildly amusing to me that was not going to make me laugh out loud in the way that people did 
in the theater. So I'm inclined to um, go back to Matt's explanation about the sort of the, the too rapid of a tension release thing going on. And so that was sort of the only way they offer the audience to react was just to laugh or just to make some sort of noise. A, a titter might have been a better way to describe it than a laugh. Um, but I, the other thing I thought that went through my head at that moment was like, oh, it's the old Katniss get knocks out thing. Yeah, if you look at it through Matt's earlier interpretation of the books being the a story of like a teenager versus adulthood, as much as a political kind of allegoryish kind of thing, then it kind of makes sense for there to be a lot of anxiety that important decisions are being made while you're asleep. Because the idea is that like young people have to go to bed before their parents, and the parents are like <laughs> downstairs having important conversations. Like, I don't want to oh, go to bed. You're going to bed. It's bedtime. Right? Like, uh, and it's like, all right, fine. And we're talking about young teenagers here. We're talking about like 13, 14 years old, like tweens even, right? Who are like, you know, I always have to go to sleep, and then everybody has a conversation. I don't get to be there, right? Um, either that or it's like triple X syndrome where it's just like, is this really supposed to be the best person in the world doing this thing? Cause he sure gets captured a lot. Like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I sort of wonder, I mean, I, I sort of wonder about that, right? Like, cause one of the big plot points in the books is like, is not plot points. One of the big kind of inju- perceived injustices in the books is like, why are the military leaders not including me in all of their decisions? I mean, I'm 16. I've been in the <laughs> Hunger Games, you know? Like, I'm qualified to, to consult on military grand strategy, you know, not even knowing the capabilities of the, of the armed forces that I'm, you know, leading and having no particular training or background in, in them. Uh, right, and, and there's a lot less of that, you know? There's a lot less of that, a lot less like, Mom, why can't I go to the meeting of the Joint Chiefs uh, in the book, right? And and it's because the, the war is a literal war instead of the, you know, I don't know, instead of the war of the, the jocks against the greasers or what have you. Hmm. So uh, should I take us out on the listener feedback that we got? Uh, let's yeah, go yeah, let's go. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to riff this pretty quickly because we're already uh, well past the hour mark here. Uh, but I did want to address this. I put this the call out on Twitter and Facebook, and we got uh, a few questions and comments that people asked us to address about the Hunger Games colon catching fo- no, Mockingjay comma part one. So here we go. Uh, Emil from Poland uh, says, damn, another episode I have to skip. So just quickly uh, uh, to respond to Emil, well, who's not going to hear this, but just in general, um, if, though, uh, not everyone might recall, but last summer we did... Uh, this thing where we kind of covered every freaking blockbuster uh, that came out, every movie that came out every weekend, and we have intentionally moved away from that so that uh, these podcasts can be more uh, accessible to people who aren't uh, absolutely on top of the movie release schedule. Um, but for this one... Also, we're not was... on top of the movie release also schedule. That, yes. There's also that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but for this, this and for a handful of select uh, movies are like such important big topics of the pop culture conversation. So we do want to be uh, on the bleeding edge, as Matt would say, uh, for that conversation. So, uh, Emil, you're not listening to this, but you will listen to it hopefully later when this movie comes out in Poland. Um, but we feel your pain. And we're trying to make this podcast as accessible as possible to people who don't watch movies every weekend. Okay. Justin Moharev says, should I bother? Or wait until part two is about to come out. No, bother. Guys. This is something that, that it benefits from from the cinematic size, from theatrical exhibition. Yeah, I liked it better than Catching Fire. Eh. So I, I, would recommend, I would recommend it for that purpose. Sure. I wouldn't say I liked it better than Catching Fire. I would say it's just a very different movie. And also they've, they've done success. They've been very successful in the chopping the book up into, into two pieces. 
more successful than I thought they were. Right. I would still fault them a little bit. I think, I mean, it's impossible to know, right, what that other movie would be like if they crammed it all into one. Um, but uh, I'd say that it, it wouldn't have been impossible. Yeah, and this was, way. I mean, right, this was not a short movie and it didn't feel like, I mean, honestly, like the, the, the feeling I had was kind of exhaustion at the 80% point in this movie. It wasn't boredom per se, but it was like, oh God, I really felt like I'd been sort of dragged through the ringer. Um, you know, emotionally kind of rising and falling, uh, with the characters. So, so it does, uh, it does stand on its own. And I think it's worth seeing. I would, I would suggest it's worth seeing in a movie theater. Yep. Uh, Josie M says, I kind of think the Hunger Games movies are an ironic exercise in the same thing that the books are critical of in society. Well, we talked about this a little bit. This is why this movie is not, uh, is not quite like Starship Troopers, but it also like, you know, Josie, I would say like, look at how many times, uh, you're looking at a screen on the screen, you know, how many times the camera is pointing, pointing at a screen and the, the, like, uh, by the way, like the canted angle of the frame or the, just the, the perspective driven, um, distortion of the shape of the rectangular screen that's being filmed, right. Is a trope of the, the distortion of meaning that, uh, that filmed entertainment introduces, right? Like uh, Pete said this in so many words before, but it was, uh, this, this film is not, is not unsophisticated about the ways in which the, the moving image is used to, uh, to persuade or manipulate. Yeah. Uh, next, Connor Moran says a lot of the ad material for the movie looks like fascist propaganda. Makes sense in context, but makes me feel uncomfortable uh, when watching the ads. That's an interesting point, because in in the film, it's in a different context. It's very, right, the sort of fascist propaganda and the sort of the fascist iconography of the leader on high and Mm -hmm. the one, you know what I mean, the the rank and file kind of lined up, the the uniformity of the dress and the uniformity of, like, of gesture and of, of like, chant, you know, um, all that is contextualized in the movie, because one of the things the movie does interestingly it, it, in an inter- like uh, in a way that i think is is actually pretty deft is transition between the inside and the outside of that right so like on the podium like you know standing in front of president snow or standing beside president snow at the the microphone right like uh giving us the the kind of interior experience of of what it's like to be at the head of one of those things but then it's also filmed in it's also filmed in a grandiose way in a way that establishes a sense of scale um and that's something that like that's something that's probably not conveyed in in the tv commercials both because of the size of the tv screen and also because of the choice of um you know the choice of shots right like shots 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 the 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 point of a tv commercial is is to make a promise to you that like if you do this thing it will be awesome kind of like bart simpson in that that early episode where he says i can't promise you victory i can't promise you good times and his army goes away and he says okay okay i promise you victory i promise you good times <laughs> and that's every movie commercial ever right yeah. but what i think connor is referring to is the graphical iconography of this movie i.e. I- the movie poster which is Katniss as the Mockingjay, as she's done up by Plutarch and District 13 as their propaganda piece. Um, 
And that there is like, you know, join the, um, the Galactic Marines to fight the bugs. Yeah, and just the, the bird with the wings outstretched is totally yeah, the, Nazi, also that. the Nazi bird. I mean, that's the, the, that's the post credit scene, too, where they show you the morphing Mockingjay. Wait, as what? Go- there was a post credit Oh, yeah, there was a, it was one of the ah, lamest post credit scenes it. I've seen. Um, but what the, all the post credit scene does is it shows you the logos of the four movies as a way of suggesting what sort of thing is going to happen in the fourth movie. Uh, the first movie, the, the, uh, the icon is of the Mockingjay on the arrow, kind of perched. And the second movie is the Mockingjay its nose extended, kind of taking flight, right? And the third the Mockingjay, is, its nose extended. Yeah, and the third movie is the Mockingjay, like, like sort of rampant, like the Mockingjay kind of reared up with its wings extended as a fascist uh, symbol, right? Like the Nazi bird with its wings extended, or like the American eagle, which is kind of a little bit fascist. Um, I mean, just like the eagle, as Ben Franklin calls it in the musical 1776, a symbol of century, uh, centuries of European mischief, right? Like, uh, at this, I, it's, a, it's an emblem of you know, European military and, and uh, authority in the civil, in the civil life. Uh, and then the fourth one, it shows the circle around the eagle breaking and the bird, like, earnestly soaring. Right, and so that's the the implication is that in the fourth movie, uh, that the bird will will truly will truly soar, uh, is the implication of the post credits. The eagle soaring at Tanagra, guys, guys, yeah. guys. I believe I can fly. All right, that's about that's about time. It's about I believe time I can touch the sky. Okay. <laughs> okay, one more piece of listener feedback. Brian Lewis asked, speaking of birds. What's your take on Birdman? So that's all the time that we have on the Overthinking <laughs> Podcast. We haven't uh, seen it, Brian. Sorry. Yeah, I haven't seen it. That's a new. Uh, that's it's on my list, though. That's a different. That's a whole other podcast entirely, though. Uh, before we leave, hey, um, it wasn't just a coincidence that we did Christmas wish lists or, or you know, any holiday, whatever holiday you celebrate. We want more holidays. I wish every day were a holiday where you could uh, use an affiliate link on Overthinking It to buy your friends something, friends and loved ones. Um, it wasn't just a coincidence that we started the show with that as a question of the week. Uh, we are launching the uh, the Overthinking It gift guide for 2014 this week. This is a, a big, important promotion for us each year uh, where we tell you the things that we have been loving and what's been on our minds and in, in our kitchens increasingly, which is an interesting <laughs> development. I think it speaks to the uh, to the ongoing domesticity, uh, the, the trend towards the do- domesticating of overthinking. Um, and uh, books and films and all kinds of things, uh, gas grills and whatnot that we are that we are into this year. And uh, when you buy them through the links on the site, we get a small kickback. And and that small kickback, it turns out, is not so small because a lot of people uh, do it every year. We appreciate that, and it gives us a non-negligible part of our uh, our operating fund for the year. So we really appreciate that, and look for that on overthinking it this week. Uh, the Overthinking It podcast will be back next week. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Would you like to know more? Hey guys, I had one question that I didn't get answered in the podcast. Uh, what's the tree hanging from? Wait, what? The hanging tree. What is it? How do they? <laughs> what do they tie it to to get it to suspend in the air?